Hi guys, it's Sarah, and good morning, evening, night, afternoon, wherever you're listening to this podcast, and welcome back to Teachable Sight. And for today's guest podcast, it is coming from Carnegie Mellon University with Timothy Versteinen. And yeah, I hope you guys enjoyed um, this month's guest episode, and I'll see you guys after. So can you start by introducing yourself? Sure. My name is Timothy Versteinen. I'm an associate professor in psychology and neuroscience at Carnegie Mellon University. All right. Thank you. So do you have any experiences with psychology and education you'd like to share? It's a big question. Um, Are there any, is there any particular way that psychology relates to education uh, that, that you're specifically asking about? Nope. This is a broad general for the first one. I mean, it's, it's, it's a little bit tough. My parents were both public high school teachers, so I, you know, I grew up in education. Uh, so for me, it's kind of hard to tell where thinking about education stops and everything else begins. Um, I got into psychology late in college, and I mostly focus on um, studying how the brain generates our behaviors. And so I never really thought about the way that that arm of psychology relates to education uh, until I had to start teaching college students. Um, I think the the number one thing for me that I've learned about psychology and how it relates to education is the power of play. There's a lot of really interesting work being done about how kids uh, and even adults when they play they learn and the way that they play allows for them to learn different things and so uh, I think over the last five or six years I've tried to really put that into my education teaching practices as well so in the classroom uh, I had I run what are called flipped classes where all the content knowledge is already online, so I record my lectures. There's videos and tutorials that students do before they come into class, and then we have a, a discussion about everything in class. So we have guided discussions, Q's and A's, and we try to get people to play with ideas. Or in other classes, like uh, last semester, I did a class on exploration, and we had a, a, a section on foraging, so how animals forage. And so for the class time assignment, I did a foraging exercise, which kind of showed this law of foraging that we know in psychology. Um, It was a fun way to get the students engaged and get them to kind of actually have an experience with the topic we were studying. Um, So for me, I think that's the number one thing I've learned from psychology that's, that's kind of come into education and how I do education as an educator. Okay. Thank you. So what's your take on how psychology is related to education? I don't think you could have a field of education without psychology. Um, I, I don't know. You have to understand how, how people learn, how people make mistakes, how people make decisions, how people see the world, how people understand the world, all of that's all wrapped up into this gigantic field we call psychology. Um, I think, you know, in some ways there's no um, 
there's no place where kind of psychology doesn't inform education, but also in a lot of ways, education turns around and informs psychology as well. So a lot of university psychology departments have what are called lab schools. So these are elementary schools that are in the university that psychology professors will use to run experiments to see how, you know, different things in the environment impact learning um, or how different structures, the way they teach materials will facilitate learning. Um, and so, yeah, I think the two of them are, are quite linked. Free form, they have like goalposts, but we can kind of wander in discussions. Uh, whereas other classes are very formal and work you through proofs or work you through, you know, specific problems in a very structured way. So I think I would probably be a lot more structured and a lot more formal if I didn't know psychology and how people learn. Okay. Um, do you think everyone in the education field should get a bachelor's in psychology? No, no. But I think everyone in education should take a psychology class. Um, and I think the, I think every human being needs to take, um, uh, either a class or, um, a, you know, a, a take a few weeks to learn the basic principles of behaviorism. Um, behaviorism is an older field of psychology, which studied how, uh, you know, things like food and rewards and compliments reinforce behavior. And so they have this very, beautiful set of principles about how to increase people's behavior or decrease people's behavior. Um, and they, they, they're really good at, at changing behavior. And that's essentially the goal of learning. So, um, yeah, I think, I, I think it's important for educators to know those, but it's, I don't think every educator needs to have a bachelor's in psychology. All right. Um, do you, does your degree, does your degree in psychology give you a dis different perspective on yourself and other people? Yes, but I don't know how. <laughs> <laughs> um, it, my degree in psych, well, first of all, psychology is a very, 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 very big field. And I'm more of a neuroscientist than I am a psychologist. Um, but then that, that becomes after a while, the way that I, I look about the world and at other people. Um, and at some point it just becomes the way that I look at the world or the way that I understand the world. And so I don't know what's me and what's my training in psychology. Um, I think a lot more about things like incentives and structure. Uh, because I know that's what changes behavior and leads to people's minds being changed as well. There's lots of really good work in psychology saying that if you change people's behaviors, you'll change their minds, not the other way around. And so, you know, things like that, I, I think about a lot more than I do trying to like reason with people. Um, I think there's more to be understood with what's driving people than um, what's logically reasoning with them. Okay. How does noise affect attention spam for children? What do you mean by noise? Like distractions. Mm, uh, 
distractions are hard. Um, and I know about this from the brain. So, um, there's, we have two different types of attention, right? There is the bottom up attention. So like a clap, right? And you will attend to that clap. It's called bottom up. You hear it in your ears and it moves up your brain, right? And you can't control that. Those are always distracting. But if I start clapping and you can listen to me talk while I'm clapping and I'm asking you to pay attention to my voice, you can control how you're hearing me and stop paying attention to my clapping and start paying attention to my words. That's top-down control. And that's top-down control is controlled by the parts of your brain that do other things like keep you from eating a cookie when you know you shouldn't have a cookie or keep you from reaching towards something that might have a spider, right? That's all related to that control of attention. And so when you're young, those brain networks aren't as formed. And so it's very difficult for kids to control their attention. So they're driven, they pay attention to everything that distracts them, right? And so in that way, noise is a problem in younger kids and, you know, actually really through high school um, because their brains can't stop paying attention to things that are like distracting. Um, whereas as you, as you get older, you learn to have you, your brain develops to have these kinds of abilities to just pay attention, force yourself to pay attention to this top down control. And it's all a matter of brain development. So, um, it's not that kids can learn it, although probably kids, some kids can to a little bit of a degree, but, um, most of the time it's just your brain has to develop for you to be able to do it. So noise and distractions in classroom, those can be, those can be really bad for student learning. Hmm. Okay. Um, why are some skills quickly learned while others take days or weeks of practice, like studying and knowing the right way and certain facts that we learn in school? Um, that is a very deep question. And if I could answer that question for you, I would also have a Nobel prize. <laughs> uh, we have, so one of the trickiest things for me to get my brain around was the fact that um, we learn, there are multiple ways that our brain learns and some of them we can talk about and, and, and think about other, other ways. Our brain just learns that subconscious, we're not aware of it. And some things are very fast and some things are very slow. And it's because we really don't have one brain. Uh, over evolution, we have, we evolved multiple brains. We have a cerebellum, which is sits in the back of the head. That's a very older brain, but that was at one point, most of the brain of an organism and then other parts developed and then other parts developed and each one has different circuits and different systems and learns different things in different ways. And then when we get the neocortex, it got, got even more complicated. And so when we talk about learning, we're talking about all of those animal brains talking together and learning together, trying to solve the same problem. And so things like facts, um, things like I used to study how people play the piano, like how they learn to play the piano, that type of, of learning, procedural learning takes a lot of time because it has to move you, st you when you start learning it evolves one set of systems and then over time it moves to another set of systems so it like migrates over time in your brain and you know that's how you can get people who you know i can't play mary had a little lamb 
but you know, my neighbor can play a Rachmaninoff concerto, right? Like, you know, he has evolved here. He has developed through learning this transfer of information. So he learns entire pieces as one movement. And I learned them as Mary had a little lamb. Like each note is independent. His brain, when he sits down, it's one, you know, complex movement, right? Um, and that takes those types of procedural skills, riding a bike, playing a piano, learning a new language. All of those um, take a lot of time because they're you want to not only learn them, but you want to make them automatic. You want to make them procedural. So if you're bilingual, if you go from the language that you, you originally learned to learning a new language, it's a skill that has to become automatic. Right. And those types of, of learning are very complicated and take a long time because you eventually just want it so that you don't think about it. It happens. Right. Uh, whereas if I tell you right now that the capital of New Mexico is Santa Fe, there's nothing complicated about that. And your brain will pick it up. And even if that's the first time you've heard that fact, you'll remember it. Right. Um, but it doesn't involve coordinating movements or doing sequences of actions or thinking about sequences of things or thinking about integrating the way I move with the sound I hear, all of that's really, really complicated. So it's why we can get, you know, computers to learn basic, basic facts like the capital of New Mexico, Santa Fe, but we're having a really hard time getting a robot to learn how to juggle, right? Because that kind of a skill is very, very, very taxing and complicated. So, um, very long answer to what was probably a very short question um, is that, yeah, it's, it's, it depends on what you're trying to learn and what systems it, it uses. Do you know how to play the piano or do you actually only know how to play Mary Had a Little Lamb? I am, I, I am horrible at learning two things, music and languages. No, um, and, yeah. <laughs> the two things yeah. I love. <laughs> oh, I love them too. I have, I have tried to learn multiple languages and I've tried to learn multiple instruments. I used to play the saxophone. Um, that was probably the, the instrument that I like got the farthest with. And I did that through like into the beginning of high school. Um, but yeah, I am, I am tone deaf to say the least. Like I can't, I cannot hear, I cannot hear intonations and I can't really hear music that well in terms of like, knowing what's, what's one note or the other. Like, I love listening to music, but I can't hear myself do it. So, yeah. Hmm. I play the clarinet. Oh, I love the clarinet. <laughs> yeah, I've been playing since sixth grade. Oh, okay. Wait, what grade are you in now? Tenth. Okay, yeah, yeah. That's a good four years of, of training. That's a, that's a difficult instrument, but when you can play it well, it gives me goosebumps. Like... You know, um, I don't know, like Gershwin or um, uh, even like Klezmer music, I think it's just so fun. Like it's got this like fun, soft sound to it. So I really like the clarinet. I can send you a recording of me playing an etude for Allstate Band. That would be fun. I'd love to hear it. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> like I said, I really wish I had that skill set. So I always love when people do. Um. Okay, so if you were to conduct a research on um, how a male or female teacher affects how a student learns, how would you do that? Actually, I think people have done this before, and it doesn't really make a difference. It Well, I take that back. In some social contexts, it does. 
Um, and this is me. I'm pulling back memories from stuff I learned in graduate school a long time ago. So I'm not sure how up to date this is, but if I remember correctly, um, there are some situations where having same gender uh, students and teachers, so like an all girls school with a female teacher, um, in those contexts, the gender of the teacher will matter. So if you have an all girls class and a male teacher, the there, and again, this has been a long time since I remember hearing about this, but um, it's harder for that situation for students to learn that situation. Um, but if you have completely mixed, so you have male and female students and male or female professors, what determines how students learn is not the gender of the professor, but the style of the teaching. Now, there are very different teaching styles that men typically do and women typically do. And so if you ignore a teaching style, it looks like there is a difference. But uh, the only time that I know that, that, that when you control for everything else, Gender matters in the context where you have like an all gender classroom and you're either have a male or female teacher. Hmm, okay. Um, how are learning styles useful with education? You know, I don't know what learning styles means. Uh, and it, the reason I say that is um, uh, all through high school and, and half of college, I was told that my learning style uh, was not conducive to learning math. I was always told that I was not a math learner. Um, and I, I believed it. I thought that I had that just the style of the way that I learned information meant that I couldn't learn math. And then I took uh, a pre-calculus class in college. And then I took calculus. And then I took linear algebra. And I discovered I really like math. I really, really like math and it's fun. I just didn't have somebody who was a good teacher to teach me in the math. I had good teachers in high school, but math was a hard subject for, for me and a lot of the teachers that I had had a hard time teaching it. Um, and so I think that at that experience kind of solidified that like when people talk about learning styles, I think, I think it's more complicated than that. And I'm not sure what a learning style is. Um, but I think a lot of times it's a matter of finding the right way to teach about the subject matter to the right students, right? So, um, you know, when you want to teach how to, like, I the, the breakthrough moment for me was calculus when I had this, this teacher who taught our class calculus by aiming cannons because that's how calculus was, was, was invented. They wanted to figure out how do they aim their cannons so their cannonball goes over their troops and onto the others which is the tangential line problem in calculus. So that made it fun and engaging and interesting, right? And every student in the class learned it, regardless of their learning style. Um, so I think there's more about, it's less about the learning style of the student and more about the teaching style of the teacher and the content that matters. Hmm, okay. So earlier you said that you studied how people learn piano, right? So. Mm -hmm. How is like music processed and learned differently compared to other concepts? Um, so I studied how people do the types of movements that they do when they're playing the piano. Um, I have a really good friend. She's a wonderful professor, Saiki Dui, who actually studies the, the way the brain learns music and how music is a specifically complicated learning problem. 
And if I can conjure my inner psyche, who, if you ever get a chance to interview her, she's great. Um, but uh, the problem with playing something like a, learning music, like playing a piano is that you have to do all these complex movements, right? Like it's the same problem as learning how to juggle and ride a bike, except you have to ride, you have to learn multiple different types of bikes. And so when you learn the piano, you're learning multiple different types of, of movements, right? Uh, depending on the piece that you're learning. And not only do you have to do the movements right, but they have to, you have to sync your movements with the sounds you're hearing, right? You have to make these on the fly decisions about slowing down, speeding up, holding a note for so long, things like that. It's a very, it engages both these high level parts of your brain that they're thinking about the, the song, what's coming next, how it should sound, how the notes should feel. Am I hitting the keys too hard? Am I hitting the keys too weak? Am I pressing the pedal too hard? And all the other parts of the brain that are, are like, how do I move my fingers? When do I move my fingers? Which fingers move when? What sequences of fingers? So all the motoric stuff is also really complicated. So in music, you kind of have the, the two really complicated parts, like high-level structure and low-level movements all have to be learned together. Whereas typing, you don't have to do that. Typing is just make the words appear on the screen. And if you type the word T-H-E, the, too fast or too slow, it doesn't matter. Right. But if you make those same movements too fast or too slow when you're making a piano piece, well, you've screwed up the piece. Right. Um, so it's a, when you take a step back and think about all the things that you have to do to make that happen, it's really hard. So there's a challenge I'll sometimes give students is just like imagine what you would have to tell somebody moment by moment to play the piano. Right. To like play a piano piece, like for a lease, let's say. How would you verbally tell them when you start getting out all the words that you have to tell them to kind of walk them through how to do the piece? It's a long set of instructions, right? And your brain has to learn that. So um, I think that's why music is so complicated. Hmm. So how does the way children receive education impact their decision making? I don't know. I don't know the answer to that one. Um, I mean, if you have students who are taught that they need to be cautious, that they, um, if they're taught that the world is dangerous and, you know, any mistake can be very costly. In that kind of sense, I can see later decisions. Those students are going to come out more cautious and more timid or more risk averse. Um, than students who are told that like they're invincible and the world is their oyster, you know. Um, so in some ways it depends on, I guess, what's taught, but um, it's not how they make the decisions that change. It's just the information they have going into the decisions that's different, right? So the way their brain makes the decision is the same. It's just they're working with different information. And so it's a complicated question to ask when you think about it because you're having to think about everything somebody learns, you know, in every class, all of that kind of goes into information that people pull up when they're trying to make a decision. Um, okay. So what got you into psychology? Um, I'm not entirely sure. (laughs) I originally wanted to study cities. I was fascinated with cities. 
Um, I used to love to go and uh, I lived in Al- I grew up in Albuquerque, New Mexico, and so we have these. You can go up to these high points, just overlook the city, either out in the West Mesa or up in the mountains. And you, I just used to love looking at cities at night because they had they look like a circuit board, right? They just everything was was very well organized, but there was also these shapes and patterns that were there. And so I thought about how the structure of cities and the structure of neighborhoods kind of indicated what they do. So I had this idea of that structure of a city and a city neighborhood would, would determine function. So like, you know, certain neighborhoods are designed to be walkable. Other neighborhoods are designed not to be certain neighborhoods are very compact and they usually have like, you know, local bodegas, other, other parts of neighborhoods are very spread out. Right. Um, so I was fascinated with that, that idea. And when I was in college, uh, I was, I was taking a couple psychology classes and I took one on the brain and behavior and the same ideas were being talked about in the brain and behavior. Like what's the circuit diagram of this brain area? How does that determine how it works? And so I got interested in this idea that there's this circuitry in the brain and the way that things are connected together gives us some insight as to what it does. Um, and that's something I've been doing ever since. I've been trying to understand how the way brain areas are kind of wired together, that structure tells us something about the function. Um, so in some ways I kind of got into psychology and neuroscience because of my interest in cities, but it's a very roundabout way. That's very cool. Okay. Well, Thank you so much for taking time your day for this interview. I really enjoyed it. Yeah, of course. I, I apologize again about, about the script earlier. Thanks for being accommodating. Yeah, of course. No problem. It happens. Um, it, if you have any other tangential questions for, or related to this, um, feel free to send me an email or I'm happy to do another chat. All right. Thank you. Hi, guys. Welcome back. Uh, I hope you guys enjoyed today's episode and that you learned something new. And yeah, I'll, I'll see you guys next time and I hope you have a wonderful day. Bye.